Revelation chapter number three, verse number seven. Revelation 3, seven. Help me, Holy Spirit. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is what Jesus says to Philadelphia, the church, the ancient church, he says to them, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus says this 2,000 years ago. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This may be the most important verse in the passage. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. She who has an ear, let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to talk to you today about your need and my need to elevate our expectation. There is something happening in the kingdom. I know it's happening in the church in America. We have been saying it's coming. We are now saying it's here, that there is an intentional move from heaven to offer, undeniably offer, true revival, perhaps another awakening that is going to literally like when a river overflows its banks and moves with such force through an area, it changes the landscape of, of when it leaves it behind. It changes everything. It takes away the things that can be shaken and it doesn't touch the things that cannot be shaken, but it changes the landscape. I, I have no hesitation to tell you, God the Father is doing that right now in so many places, places that are peculiar, places where we would not have thought it would originate. He is proving himself true to his word where he says he's not choosing the wise, he's not choosing the strong, he's not choosing the noble, he's not choosing the impressive. He's no longer going to be uh, blessing our systems that we prop up that bring results but don't facilitate fruitful, lasting results in the sense of kingdom results and spirit. He's, he's moving intentionally and there are a couple of things that I, 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 I see are happening and are going to happen. Those that will abide with the Lord 
through this growing, undeniable change of what's happening in the professing church in America, those who will abide, those who will thirst, those who will say, I am aligning myself with what I sense the Father doing. I am expecting by faith that things will never again be as they have been. But I am expecting, Lord, that this is what we have prayed for. This is what we have waited on. I believe we are starting to see just blips on the radar, slight drizzle before the downpour. But I believe that the Lord is going to primarily, at the beginning of the season which we are in, he's going to meet most of us at the level of our faith, at the level of our expectation. So in other words, there won't be the luxury of watching it happen while you're disengaged from it. It's not going to be so God can just make it observational. He wants it experiential. In other words, he doesn't want you to watch it on the big screen. He wants you to step into it and to be able to experience it with him. What am I talking about? Well, I'm going to share a little bit about it through this passage because I do believe that some of what Jesus said to this ancient, small, seemingly um, unimpressive group of believers in the ancient city in Philadelphia... I believe that some of what he's saying to them, he's also saying to us here in this local assembly, in this mission base. So let's start where we always should start. Let's talk about the glorious headship of the church. Let's go straight to the throne. Some people may want to ask, I hear Newbridge has four pastors. I hear the mission base has two primary teams of leadership, but ultimately, hey, behind the scenes, who's the head of the church? Well, it is my joy and privilege to announce to you today with no qualifications that the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord, the resurrected King upon his throne in heaven is the head of New Bridge and IHOP Atlanta and evermore will be forever and ever. And that's not church talk. That is theologically true, and that is the heartbeat of every one of your leaders. We want Jesus at the head. Now, this is what, what we can expect from Jesus as he watches over Philadelphia and he watches over us. First of all, he is the watchful leader. He says in verse 7, to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, right. So Jesus is resurrected. He's appearing to John in a supernatural vision where John has seen Jesus in his glory. It has brought John to his knees. He is now raised up and Jesus, the Son of God, is dialoguing with John. And he says, John, I want you to write down these messages because there's some churches, some local gatherings of believers that I've got to speak to and I want you to write it down I want to make sure this message gets to him and one of them was Philadelphia this is what I love about this Jesus knew who they were and Jesus knew where they were you see my friends we sometimes think of, of, of God just operating and just kind of a global overseeing and it's just the big picture one big kind of anonymous flock of Christians but it's not like that at all that literally the Lord is interested and invested and involved not only with every little local assembly. I mean, listen, he knows we're here today. He knows who we are. He knows where we are. He knows what the, the heartbeat and the pulse is in our veins. He knows that we're pressing in. He hears our prayers. He sees our fasting. He knows when we're sacrificing and giving and serving. But he knows, doesn't only know this church and this mission base. He knows you. He's the watchful leader. He's the watchful head over all that is going on. I want you to begin to reacquaint yourself with the interactive God. Not, not just the God who's one-dimensional on the pages of the Bible. The Bible's awesome. I'm a Bible guy. 
But my friends, I'm going to tell you, bibliolatry is killing the church. What do I mean by that? Where people are worshiping the words on the paper and missing the presence of its author. And so when we're looking at this, Jesus is saying, I know Philadelphia before they got this letter. Can you imagine being in that congregation? And you get the scroll comes to the assembly and whoever the, the, the angel of the church, that's, that's a phrase that means the pastor of that church, the light of that church, that man unfolds that scroll and he begins to read it from John the beloved in exile and Jesus is sending a message to that 100 group, 50 group of believers and all of a sudden they're aware he knows who we are, he knows where we are. See, we need to get reacquainted with the fact that he's not so busy in heaven, you know, running the cosmos that he forgot your name. You're precious to him. It, it, there's, there's never been a thing that you've done to make him turn his eyes off of you. He, he's not walked away. He's not, he's, not, he's not busy with other people, the special ones. He's the only being in existence that has the capacity to give every single one of his creatures 100% of his attention. And so he's got his eyes on us. He knows where we are. He knows who we are. He's the perfect leader, by the way. He goes on, he describes himself. I love how Je when Jesus describes himself, we don't have to debate on whether or not it's true. He describes himself as the holy one and the true one. That word holy, sometimes we think of just moral purity and without sin, and that's, that's obviously part of it. But it also indicates the one who was set apart for this, a specific purpose. And so God chose his son and sent his son to come into the world, set him apart, sanctified him for the purpose of being the Lamb of God, the sacrificial one who laid down his life to pay the price so that people like us, flawed people, rebellious people, renegade people, religious people, self-righteous people, rebellious people, all of that. People like us could enter into a relationship with God, so God set apart Jesus. Jesus was the one and the only one because there's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And he describes himself as the holy one, and I love this, he's the true one. You know, a lot of us have, have had experiences in life and... They, they can be life-changing where we trusted somebody. We loved somebody. We depended on somebody. We thought this, this, and this about somebody. And then there came a time where all of that was washed away because we found out they weren't who we thought they were. And when that happens, and especially if it happens repeatedly, and especially if it happens to us when we're young, the natural defense is that we start building walls. We want to build up walls. We can peek behind the walls. We can pop out, but we can run back behind the wall if we need to. We build up walls because we begin to wonder who's real, who's authentic, who's true. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. Um, we are to love people. We are not to live in a self-defensive posture, but there is only one in existence who has never and will never, ever, 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 ever fail you. And that is the very one who says, I've got my eye on you. I'm holy. I've been set apart for you. I'm going to save you. I did what I did for you because I love you. And now that I have you, I want you to know, though this one has failed you and this one has failed you, this one abused you, this one abandoned you, this one took advantage of you, this one ignores you in lovelessness, I want to tell you something. I'm the true one. I, I give you my heart. I give you my life. I give you myself. I give you everything that you're going to need in order for us to be together so it'll bring me glory and bring you great joy. He's the true one. 
And some in the room today, you, you've not come to God because you've seen God through the lens of somebody that hurt you and disappointed you. And, and you've attributed, you've projected human failure onto God. And it's scary to trust someone when you've been hurt. But I want to tell you, as, as one who lived that life up until I was 24 years old, I, I didn't want to love anybody. I didn't want to trust anybody. I didn't want to listen to anybody because everybody I'd ever trusted, listened to, or loved hurt me up until that point. And so it took me years to come to the place where God stripped away everything. And he, and he literally had to bring me to that place where I had nothing left. And his question was this, will you trust me? And it was the hardest decision I've ever made, but in the moment, it became the easiest decision because, listen, I had nothing left to lose and nothing to prove, and I thought to myself, well, and even in, in the prayer I gave when I was saved, it was the most non-religious salvation ever. Apartment 112, 3100 Sweetwater Road, Lawrenceville, Georgia, 30044. Walked in the front door of that apartment, dead bolted it behind me at about nine in the morning. Went down to a little beer-soaked patch of carpet, moved the beer cans, fell down on my face, and I said, God, that preacher told me that you would save me. I don't know if you're going to save me or you're going to kill me, but I'm done running from you. Here's my life. And I released my life. And listen, no, Gabriel didn't come in and say, dun, dun, dun. There was nothing like that. There were no angels. There was no light invading the room. But I'm going to promise you something. In that moment of release and trust to the Holy One and the True One. And I knew very little at that time. I only knew that a rebel had found his last leg of the race and God was the only place I could turn. And when I released to him, he delivered me from the drugs, delivered me from the alcohol, delivered me from so much in my life in that one moment where I met the True One. And friend, if you're here today, I don't invite you to religion. I don't invite you to pretend. I don't invite you to even join a church because if you join a church but you've never met Jesus, you're wasting your time. But I invite you to come and meet the true one. And you're going to find, as so many of us have, that he, he, he really, there's times where we don't know what he's doing, but when we wait and we abide and we endure, the true one proves that he knew better all along and we trusted him. Jesus is the powerful leader. Back to the text. He has the key of David, Jesus says. I'm going to explain that in a moment. He says, I open, nobody can shut what I open. And I shut, and nobody can open what I shut. Let me give you a couple of things here. It's an allusion to Isaiah chapter number 22, verses 20 through about 22, 23. And there's a man named Eliakim, and he's become now the, the chief of staff for King Hezekiah. And there was an unfaithful servant named Shebna, and he got fired, and he got dispatched. And the key to the palace, the key to the kingdom, was given to Eliakim. And Eliakim was said to have the key, and walking around Hezekiah's kingdom and Hezekiah's household, it spoke of authority. He could go in any door he wanted, and he could lock any door he wanted. And it literally says in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, that Eliakim had the power to shut doors and close doors under the authority of the king. And so Jesus takes that imagery that would have been very familiar to John and probably familiar to the Christians at Philadelphia. And he says, I am that one who has the key. I have divine authority because I've got the key of David. Let me give you this real quick. Jesus doesn't have to ask anybody's permission to do what he wants to do. And he always does what is right. Now he'll listen to us. I've given him many suggestions during my lifetime. And very few of them has he said, oh, I didn't think of that. That's never happened. 
He, he, listen, he'll listen to us all day, but ultimately we've got to recognize he's got divine authority, and it's so good because he's the only true one. He's the only holy one. It's good that he's got that authority over our lives as a congregation and as individuals. But I love the fact that it also has some practical aspects to it. It's not just authority, but he actually uses that authority to work in your life. What am I talking about? His sovereign prerogative when he says, I'm the one who opens doors. And child, I'm the one who shuts doors. Now, we're going to come back to that in a second, but I love the fact that the, uh, the king of all kings is letting the church at Philadelphia know this. I've kept my eye on you guys. I know where you are. Hey, I know who you are. And you can trust me because I am set apart for the Father to be your Lord, to be your Savior. And I'm true, and I'll never lie to you, and I will never let you down. If you will continue to press on with me, even the things you're not certain about now, you will be certain about later because I'm true, and I cannot do wrong. And he says this, and I'm going to use all of my authority as I lead you. And you're going to encounter a couple of things. Sometimes you're going to encounter shut doors. Sometimes you're going to encounter open doors. But I want you to know, whatever the door is, I'm the one who has the key. I'm the one who has the key. So this helps me to get to verse number eight. We're still just talking about him as the glorious head of the church. He is a watchful leader, a perfect leader, a powerful leader. But he's also an interactive leader. And this is the part that just really needs to start, you know, cranking your truck a little bit. God deliver the American church from the idea that you are just up in heaven kind of buying time while we scramble, strive, and struggle to figure everything out down here on our own so we can present it to you. He's interactive. He actually doesn't want you to live for him. Yeah, I knew it'd be quiet, but let me qualify that. He does not want you to live for him. He wants you to live with him and in him. Living for him is Martha. Living in him and with him is Mary. And although Mary lives in and with Jesus, she can do all that Martha is doing. That's not a problem. But Martha is doing all this stuff while Jesus is in the other room. And that speaks of what's going on in so many Christians' lives that they're scrambling. They're beating on doors. I got to open this door. Bring me a jackhammer. Bring me a, a, a saw. Bring me, what do they call that thing where they boom, the door open. Bring me one of those things. You know, sometimes we're just so convinced that the door has got to open. We're like, okay, I must be praying wrong. I've, you know, I'm just going to, sometimes we cut out a window so we can get in because he won't open the door. And Jesus, he, he, he's interactive. That means he's, he's, he's actually with you right now if he's in you he's with you so what does he say he says i know your works philadelphia i know your works new bridge i know your works i hop atlanta behold i have set before you now listen he's talked about closed doors look at what he sets before this church i've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut that means when he opens the door satan himself can't budget a quarter inch on well-oiled hinges. He can't do it. When Jesus opens the door, I believe that this is prophetic application now. I know you've heard this passage before. This is not new. 
But when I was led back to this passage, I even kind of coursed through it a little bit with Billy and, and just saying, when, when you go through this passage, what, what, do you, what do you share? And the exact same thing that I'm sharing with you today. When you sense that God is placing an open door before you, it's not so you can high five everybody and say, hey, there's an open door. It's not so you can brag about it. It's, it's so you can actually step through it because he opens it to take you from where you've been to where he wants you to be. And so there is a potential for a lot of people with an open door in front of them to not walk through it. Why? Because on the other side of that open door is a place that you don't know all about. Because when you're on this side of the door, you've been there a minute. You know how to live there. You know how to manage there. You know how to operate there. You've gotten so many answers there that you're now comfortable there. And so some people say, give me an open door, Lord. And some people just, they're the exact opposite. I said, please don't open a door. I really like right here. I'm in the womb right now, Lord. I just, this is where I want to be. It's safe, it's warm, it's cozy. But when the Lord opens a door, he expects us to walk through it. There, there are things that I want to say that I probably can't say yet. Um, but I don't want to say nothing, so I'm going to say something. And if you're an English teacher, don't even bother to email me. I know I butchered that one. Why did the Lord, listen to me, this is history. Never forget where we came from. Why did the Lord take a fundamentalist, independent Baptist church and put a reformer in the role of pastor? That's, that's, that was me, who said, I don't, I don't think much of what we're doing or being has anything to do with the scripture. We need to be biblical people. And so I spent eight years reforming Meadow Baptist Church according to the scriptures. And then God took that same Baptist preacher four months after he became the pastor and baptized him sovereignly in the Holy Spirit, which definitely complicated matters for me. <laughs> and I had to learn how to walk with that. And God was blessing all we're doing. And then years later, he takes a biblically-oriented Church of God pastor who was sick and tired of all the nonsense that he had seen in little pockets of charismania, and he says, there's got to be a place where the gifts can be validated, but the Word can be honored. And God takes the guy who wanted more Word and the guy who wanted more Spirit, and he, he had a wedding where the two, two congregations came together. And then two and a half years after that, he marries that group into the prayer movement, the global prayer and missions movement. And here we are today, and we're, we're, we're just getting before the Lord, and we're, we're saying, what, what is going on? We love it. We've been obedient. But Lord, there's got to be a why to all of this. And this is what we're hearing. The door is open. I'm going to lead you through it. So Billy's up in KC, and he texted me. Or actually, we did a, a, a little conference call last night. And how many of you know the name David Slyker? You all know Dave Slyker. Dave's a great man of God. And Dave and Billy were having a conversation about this, about New Bridge and IHOP, about all of us together. And Dave said to Billy, Billy, what's happening there is not happening anywhere else on the planet where the global prayer movement is being merged with the local church for the purpose of sending the gospel to the neighborhoods and the nations. There are plenty of good mission churches. There's plenty of good prayer houses. There's plenty of good local churches. There's not a, anywhere on the planet that we know of where God is intentionally in a short 
highly combustible time and fusing these parts together with scarcely a word of explanation to those of us that are stewarding it. It's obedience, and the door is open, and as we are walking through that door, let me tell you a couple of things. Be prepared for it to be exciting, but you better buckle up. Because we say, well, Jeff, tell us what's going to happen. We'll decide if we're going to walk through. That's not the way it works. Could you imagine Abraham saying that to God? God, get up, uh, Abraham, get up and uh, leave your kindred, kinfolk, and go to a place where I tell you. Um, how about plugging it into my GPS and I'll decide if I want to obey or not? So, friends, the open door, I know one thing. It's going to lead to glory. It's going to lead to some holy adventure. But there's not a person on the planet that knows fully what God wants to do. All I know is that as he set an open door before the church at Philadelphia, there is clearly an open door. And don't forget this. He said, nobody's going to shut it. It's a sovereignly opened door to Philadelphia and us. By the way, he goes on to say, I know that you only have a little bit of power, but you have kept my word and you've not denied my name. So I don't believe that God is doing what he's doing here because we've earned it. But let me say this. Through our obedience, through our unapologetic commitment to the word of God, unapologetic commitment that Jesus must be remaining first in all things, that if any human being starts getting any glory around here, we pray that God will just strike it down because it'll be defiled. We want Jesus to get all of the glory as, as, as there are so many temptations to alter our messaging, to change it up, to make it more appealing, to reach the broader masses. We're not doing it. What are we doing? We're taking the little strength that we have and we're going to honor his name and we're going to honor his word, what he has said, and we're going to trust him to bless it in ways that we've not seen yet. And so he's interactive with us. He says these things. He goes, I know what you're doing. I'm actually setting an open door before you. I know you've only got a little bit of power, but what I love about you, Philadelphia, is that you've kept my word. You've kept my word and you've refused to deny my name. So the interactive king is watching us. He's working on our behalf. He's opening doors. What a privilege. If, if, if you've ever pastored a church where all the doors are shut, it is a stale, suffocating reality. And I have been there. I spent years that way. I took a chainsaw. I was going to cut me open a door if he didn't let me out at one point. That's the way I felt on the inside. And so to now know that he's given us an open door, a kingdom door, a door for his glory, a door where people are going to be saved, a door where, the, listen, that the Holy Spirit's going to be rightly represented and he's going to be honored as God and not some little trick, some little limelight kind of cool kind of stuff, but that we're going to honor him as God. We're going to expect him to do the supernatural works he did all throughout the book of Acts and what Jesus did in the Gospels and what we see referred to in the epistles. That we're not going to be embarrassed over the Holy Spirit. That we're not going to try to keep him in a back room for a Thursday night so nobody on Sunday gets offended. Somebody should have shouted right there. So he's doing all of these things. I'm going to finish. What are you laughing for me? <laughs> I don't know, me. Number, verse number nine is sobering because, listen, I'm, I'm just painting it real for you today. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen as we walk through this door as the blessing of God continues to unfold. There's going to be fierce, fierce opposition against the church. 
Now, I'm not even speaking big picture end times. That's definitely going to happen. But I'm talking about as we walk through the door. And it's personified here by the religious resistance that came against the church at Philadelphia through those that were religiously Jewish but were not bought into the covenant recognizing Jesus as the fulfillment of that covenant. What am I talking about? Well, look, empty religion will oppose. I want you to think about this. Write it down if you have to. Empty religion always gets excited about resisting a work of God. Empty religion will lay flat and docile 364 days a year. But on the one day where God starts to move and their system, empty religion system, is threatened, empty religion will rise up in zeal and passion and thunder and, and, and rhetoric, and they will put all of their energies against for the purpose of suppressing any move of God. It says here, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That's intense. That is intense. That in Philadelphia, there were clearly Jewish people op opposing the advance of the gospel and the existence of those Christians in that area. And Jesus says, says here, I'm going to take care of them. Now, let me just kind of apply this. Let me unpack it and apply it. Uh, I don't have any problems with Jews and Israel. This is not an anti-Semitic thing. Matter of fact, I've never been persecuted or resisted by a Jewish person. I've had great conversations with those that do not recognize Yeshua as Messiah. And I believe that we are blessed when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so if you're wondering where I stand, I'm about as pro-Israel as a guy can get. And I will remain that way. And, and that's not a political statement. That is a theological conviction. Because God made a covenant with Abraham that's still in full effect no matter what uh, modern-day uh, people have to say about that. So my, my opposition hasn't come from the religion of the Hebrews. The opposition that will come against us will come from people who believe that they are sincerely serving God, but they are not doing so according to knowledge. They have a zeal. The box will be shattered. The way that we do church will be shattered doesn't mean that parts of it won't remain. Of course it will. My plan is that we should gather here weekly as often as we can. But that does not constitute kingdom. Because we need to be as zealous and engaged and dependent upon Jesus out there as we are in here. I want to be more engaged in advancing the gospel to parts of the world that have no gospel. When you start advancing into territories where the enemy has a stronghold of darkness there will be opposition and all of it won't look satanic and demonic some of it's going to look very religious you'll be slandered there'll be people who when they find out you go down there to that church that there's going to be a stigma on you when you when you give testimonies of people being healed when we see people getting delivered from demons and it's not calm, quiet, and quaint. But it involves a lot of noise and a lot of energy. It's going to provoke a response. Religion has always resisted the authentic work of God. So I'm, going to, I'm telling you this stuff ahead of time. Is we're, we're, look, 2019 is here. 
And, and, and God's not, I, I, none of your leaders sense that God is just saying, yeah, take your time, take your time. He's not meandering through the garden with us. He's calling us to run up a hill with him and to fight along the way and to plant some stations of rescue and redemption and healing and deliverance and to love people with a furious love like we've never loved before. To be the church that says, send us all in the community that no other place will receive. Send us your moral rejects. Send us your extreme appearances. Send us your crazy folk. Send us the addict. Send us the harlot. Send us the ones that are filled with, stuffed with pride. You know, I am so used to seeing addicts and hookers and all these people get delivered. I want to see some self-righteous people get delivered. I want to see them get annihilated by the power of God. That, I mean, we are used to it. We are used to seeing people get delivered. But I want to see somebody who doesn't think they have a shred of need for the Son of God to walk in all bloated and puffed up and empowered, feeling like they're the stuff. I want to see them get rocked by the Holy Spirit and where they decry, Lord, be merciful unto me. I am the sinner. And that can be this house. It can be your life. It can be your ministry. He's opened a door for us. Religion's going to oppose it, but I, just hear me on this. I have been there. I have done that. I have a closet full of T-shirts that said, I fought religion and they lost. Friends, I am not afraid of that anymore. I spent years trying to make religious people happy and it failed miserably. I tried to keep them. Y'all, listen, y'all can just leave when you got to leave, but I, I just I feel the Holy Spirit on this. I, I, I got to be careful because I forget this stuff goes on TV. Some of them were good folks. Some of them were terrible human beings. And they opposed anything that they couldn't predict, control, or manage. And I tried. I just thought, man, if I just show them from the scriptures what is true... And I had some of them tell me, literally, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not kidding. He said that. And then there came this, it's like ripping off a scab. Aren't you glad you came today? Isn't that a pleasant thought? It's like ripping off a scab. I was peeling that bad boy slowly for years. Ow! Oh! Ah! Eh! Eh! And they're still there. The scab's still there. And finally, the Lord said, why don't you just yank that thing off? Well, it'll hurt, Lord. It's going to bleed. Yeah, it's going to bleed. It's going to hurt. But you've been hurting for eight years. Rip it off. And freedom came. And so here's the thing. If we'll stand with each other and, and we'll not be embarrassed about what the Lord is doing and, and we'll not apologize for the manifest presence of the Lord, that he, he, we're not supposed to control that. The Lord is not a, a horse that you harness. Write that down, Landon. I want to use that again sometime. I'm just trying to find a place to pull this in the station. Maybe worship team, y'all just come up. I'll, I'll find a landing space. L let me just, just look in verse number 10 with me because this is the victory. I want, to, I want to leave you, I want you to leave with the word of victory. 
Jesus says to them, yeah, you're going to be opposed, you're going to be fought, but I'm going to make the religious crowd come and bow down at your feet. And that's not to worship the Christians, but to, it shows that triumphant Jesus gives the victory to those who, who stand firm with him over religion. And you'll see that happen in your life. Some of you have people in your family that try to control you religiously, and they say snide stuff, and they mock, and they stuff out of, and, and listen, you, you've got to love them, but you don't have to listen to them. You don't have to listen to a word that they say. And if they try to guilt you into listening to them, just start blessing them in the name of Jesus. Just start operating in joy. Just start praying in the spirit right in front of them. They'll run, man. They'll be out of there. So he says this in verse 10. He says, because you've kept the word about my patient endurance, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. So there's a preservational aspect that the Lord's saying, he's indicating that there's, there's going to be bombastic things happening at the end of the age. I'm going, and the, the Greek there, and when it says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, the Greek phrase means to, in the, being in the midst of something, I'm going to pull you out of something. So we're not told that we're not going to go through trial and tribulation, but we are told that the presence of the Lord is going to be with us, and at the end, we will triumph over it and be brought out of it, while the others succumb to it because they rebelled against the one who is delivering us. But we will be militant in love and loyalty. Verse 11, Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. That's where he's telling me to stop. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. The, the sense of the word is sudden. I'm coming with a suddenness. So many times Jesus spoke about the way he's coming and so many people aren't going to be ready and the, the lamps won't be lit because they don't have oil and the, the, the virgins won't be ready, but his bride will be ready. And folks, that day is coming literally. The Son of God, the same one who rose up off a hillside outside Jerusalem and ascended into the clouds and took his seat at the Father's right hand, he is there in the same resurrected, glorified body that he left earth in. And he's coming back in that same body, a physical, glorified, resurrected body. And he's coming back, and he's not going to be turning the other cheek. He's not going to be patting little children on the head. He's not coming back handing out daisies at the airport. He's coming back to wage war with the, the dragon. He's coming back to bring down this, the, the, the empires of this world. He's coming to divide the sheep and the goats, and the goats will move into their inheritance with him forever and ever. And the goats will, excuse me, the sheep will move into their inheritance forever and ever with him, and the goats will move into everlasting condemnation. But he's coming back. And so what he's asking us to do as a faith family, as believers, he's asking us to walk through the door, to keep walking through the door without demanding a forecast of everything that's going to happen once we do, without, without dragging our feet, without doing what Mrs. Lott did and looking back on our shoulder at what used to be, but moving into the next, the uncontainable new, what he has for us. John closes and he says, the ones that have an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Will you? Will you listen? Will you believe? Will you commit? Stand to your feet.